Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going through John, and, and uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. He's not observing the Feast of Booths. He's just in Jerusalem ministering to the crowds that are there um, during the, that week of the Feast of Booths. This is probably October. It's a, it's a fall festival. It's the, the last one there. And in the middle of that feast, he went into the temple. Though, though they're trying to, the leaders are trying to kill him, he shows up in the temple courtyard and starts teaching. Crowds gather, the whole thing's on. The last day of that seven-day Feast of Booths is, is the day in which he stood up. This is what we saw last week, I think. And he stood up and he said, is anyone thirsty? Uh, let him come to me and drink. As the scriptures said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you recall that? He's announcing the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and that he is that fountain of living water and that if we come to him, we become fountains of living water too, if you listen to the way he said it. Uh, many, many believed it created quite a stir and then we talked about the controversy over him and how the, the people responded to this. The day after the Feast of Booths, or the eighth day you might say, but it is not part of the Feast of Booths, but it is, a, it is the eighth day it is also a special festival, and it is, a, it is a festival that comes right out of the Bible. Moses said, on the eighth day, after the Feast of Booths, you are to read the law. You are to, to read the Torah and remember the law and, and celebrate it. Now, he only required them to do it once every seven years, but it came to be a, a regular part of things. They would do this in, the, in the, what's called the Court of the Women. You have the big out court, outside court, which is the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles can go in there. And then you come in, you go through the beautiful gates, and you come right into this, this, this first court in the temple area itself. It's called the court of the women. It's not just because women are there, and, but that's as far as women can go. Uh, but in, they have there, they have the, they have the thing for, um, for leprosy. They have, the, the, they have treasury. They have all, this is a big active court. Then you go up these steps and you go into the, the temple uh, area itself where it's got the altar of burnt offering and, and those things. That's called the court of Israel. And the men occasionally can go in there and line the walls and watch. But it's, it, mostly the action is in that what's called the court of the women. During this Feast of Booths, when it comes to this day, a wooden, a wooden uh, platform was built for uh, the king or in this case the priests to stand on that thing and read the Torah. Torah is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they're going to read that whole thing aloud to the people because this is the last day of their cyclical reading through the Torah. You follow? All, all of Judaism would read certain portions, and you read through the five books of Moses every year. You go round and round and round. So this is the last reading, and you're now the next day, we'll start at Genesis 1-1, and you'll begin your reading through the Torah again. So it's a day celebrating the law 
the giving of the law of Moses. And on that day, this happens. Father God, would you open our hearts? We would see Jesus. We would watch him and listen to him and let him disciple us. We have chosen to come to him and believe in him and love him. He is your son and he is our savior. And we ask, oh God, for faith, that we would hear with faith, ears that are open, eyes that see the things of God. And I pray for the grace, Lord, uh, to let you speak. And Lord, we love you. That's why we're here. Feed us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in John 7, just the last verse. And then I, we go on to uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So all the people go into their houses there in Jerusalem, but Jesus goes out and camps in an olive orchard. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Would you read that out loud with me? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center, and this says of the court, I think it's the center of the group. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. Would you read his last statement there? I do not condemn you either on. I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. We're talking about saving guilty people today. To the priests, Jesus was a political problem. They just wanted him out of the way. The top priests in, in Israel at that point were people who had bought the priesthood. It was a corrupt group. They're a different spirit entirely. But to the Pharisees... Jesus was a biblical problem. Let me just stop a second. The Pharisees, we often hear just nothing but negative about them. What they were was, was, was Bible believers who felt that you needed to get back to obeying the Bible or God was going to judge Israel again or keep it under judgment. They, it was under the Romans at the time. And so they were saying the way out is for us to obey the law right down to the smallest details. And if we'll do that, God will, will take his hand and, and remove our oppressors and, and, and uh, bless us. Uh, they're not entirely wrong. And uh, that's what Ezra uh, taught them as they came, as when Israel came back from its uh, exile with the Babylonians. He, he wrote Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. It was all one great scroll. And his whole point was, you got to turn back and obey God. So when you talk to the, about Pharisees, you're talking about people that care what the Bible says. People who are trying to obey the Bible. You need to put that in perspective. You know, we, we often just vilify them. Uh, 
they get pretty mean, but so do a lot of us. And uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. It, it, but it, that's why Je- for, to the Pharisees, Jesus was a biblical problem. He kept putting the needs of people ahead of the rules in the law of Moses. Yet the God who wrote those rules didn't seem to be angry with him. Jesus was performing miracles that were very hard to ignore. If God was angry with him, it didn't show. But up till now, most of their complaints were about the way he interpreted the ceremonial portions of the law. Things that had to do with what was clean or unclean or what it meant to rest on the Sabbath. They were upset because he ate with sinners, touched lepers and dead bodies, and ministered on the wrong day. But would he ignore the moral portions of the law as well? What would he do if he were confronted with someone who had unquestionably violated another of the Ten Commandments besides keeping the Sabbath day holy? If he publicly rejected one of those holy standards, people would turn against him And they, the Pharisees, would have grounds and witnesses to accuse him of being a false prophet. You might, I'm not going to take you there, but that passage there I reference in Deuteronomy 13. It says that if, if, if any prophet rises up and does miracles and wonders but teaches you to disobey what I've taught you, these, these commands of the law, he's a false prophet. You stone him. And so so the, that's, the, that's the, the, the underlying thinking here. So on a day when all Jerusalem was celebrating the giving of the law, they placed a woman caught in the act of committing adultery in front of him and dared him to ignore that rule. The day after the Feast of Booths is a special holiday of its own. It's called Shemeni Atzeret. That's the best I can do. And in the city of Jerusalem on that same day, Simcha Torah, rejoicing in the Torah, is celebrated. Everywhere outside of Jerusalem, Simcha Torah is celebrated on the ninth day. Uh, but any city that has walls this is supposed to do it on the eighth day. It's celebrated. Uh, it marks the final reading for the year from the five books of Moses. On the next day, the first reading in Genesis begins the cycle of reading through the Torah all over again. Moses commanded that the nation gather at the Feast of Booths. And read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. In the time of Jesus, a great wooden platform was constructed in the court of the women from which the priests read the Torah. The temple, pardon me, priests would also stand on street corners and gateways, blowing their trumpets and announcing the hour of the Torah reading ceremony. So you've got priests that spread out through the city. They're blowing those ram's horns and all, and probably silver trumpets, and, and saying, well, come and hear the reading of the word. Come and hear the word of God. And, and so this is a big, special day. The, this background may help us understand why the scribes and Pharisees confronted Jesus about the law on that day. It was, to cel- it was a day to celebrate the law of Moses. Jesus arrived at the area of the temple called the treasury in the court of the women very early in the morning before the ceremonies got underway. After he sat down and began to teach, some scribes and Pharisees brought a woman whom they said had committed adultery. It appears she was caught early, early in the morning and being brought to the temple to be presented to the priests. When her captors saw Jesus, they saw an opportunity to expose to the public what they considered to be a lack of commitment by Jesus to the law. 
The law does specifically command that if a woman who is engaged to be married, this is, this is specific language, a woman who is engaged to be married commits adultery, she's to be stoned. The command of stone has to do just with, exactly with that. Uh, the others are, others, others are vague. It also even says, and, and I, don't, I didn't bring it out here, but um, I'm, it's not clear to me that, that the this, this statement here, when it says we caught her in the act of adultery, it may be we caught her being adulterized. Um, in other words, seduced. The law reads this, that if, if, uh, if she's in the city and, and, and is attacked and doesn't cry out, uh, then she's considered guilty. I mean, so this gets really fine and icky, uh, the whole thing. But anyway, they, they bring this woman. And uh, the law does, not, does specifically command that if a woman who is engaged to be married committed adultery, she's to be stoned. And yet it does appear that, that executing people for adultery was, was not common at that time. Divorce with financial compensation was done instead. All right, so they're really pressing the mark, trying to make a point with Jesus. They made her stand in the midst of the gathering and said, Teacher, this woman was seized in the act of committing adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Therefore, what do you say? We're told that their motive was to test him so that they might have reason to formally accuse him of a religious crime. But Jesus did not reply. Instead, he stooped down and wrote in the dirt with his finger. Apparently, he remained in that position and stayed silent for a significant amount of time, but they wouldn't give up. They kept on questioning him and demanding an answer until he finally stood to his feet and said, let the sinless one among you Throw the first stone at her. And then he stooped down and began to write in the dirt again. In those few words, he basically told them that the qualification for punishing others is sinlessness. And then asked them to judge themselves by that standard before they judged her. After hearing what he said, those who brought the woman began to leave one at a time, beginning with the elders. And finally, only the woman remained standing where they left her. While those men wrestled with their conscience, Jesus continued writing in the dirt. But after they left, he stood to his feet and he asked, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? She replied, no one, sir. And then he said, and I don't condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. A living parable. This encounter is so full of meaning, it's like a parable. The closer you look, the more truth you discover. Jesus was being dared by these Pharisees to uphold the moral standards of the law of Moses, probably within sight of a wooden platform that had been constructed so the priests could read the, aloud the law of Moses on that special day. Would Jesus ignore or agree with the law's penalty for adultery? Obviously, the Pharisees felt he'd been far too lenient with sinners. But how lenient was he? Would he let her go or call for her execution? They would soon find out, and so will we, as we discover the lessons taught by this living parable. Lesson number one. They asked him, does she deserve to be condemned? And he answered, yes, but so do you. Because God's standard is complete sinlessness. And not one of you is without sin. So by the standard of God's law, you too are under the same verdict, death. 
The Apostle Paul in his letters explains this same truth to us. He said, God gave the law not to save people, but to show us that we need to be saved. Did you hear that? Paul will go on to explain it, and you all know it intuitively, so do I. That there is birthed within us, as Adam's children, a rebellious nature in the very fabric of our bodies. Our emotions, our, 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 our appetites, within us is this just tor torrent of, of, of passions, uh, anger, lust, fear, uh, this is competitive kinds of stuff that go on inside of us. We, we have this turmoil uh, that goes on. We, we, get, we covet, we desire. Do we not? That flesh is, yes, four of us do, and I, I happen to know about the rest of you too. Maybe that's what I'm saying. This is the whole problem, see, is, is, is the law, and I'll show it to you in a minute. The law says for us to receive the blessings of the law, you cannot break it in one point. If you sin against the law in any form, you have failed it entirely. That's what he's doing. He says, he says to people who know the law, he says, yeah, and you without sin, you throw the first stone. He's got them. He has them. They know the law. He knows the law. He's right. He's right. And so starting with the elders... And it says, doesn't just say the oldest one. It says elders, the presbytery. Starting with the elders, those guys just started walking away one at a time. Going, I'm out of this. He isn't he cool? I mean, he's just got him. Huh? Listen to Paul. Paul will explain this. This is Romans 3.20. By the, why don't you read it out loud with me? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the words, works of the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says what the law does for us is show us the holy standards of God. Shows us how God would like us to behave and what, how, he, how he thinks about things and what he thinks is beautiful and ugly and good and bad and right and wrong. He shows us these things and then as we try to obey it, we discover we can't. It gives us the knowledge of our own sinfulness. That apart from mercy... We won't make it. That's the proper role of the law of God. Look at, look at the next quote here, Galatians 3.22. But, but we'll read it that with me. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that by, a promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is saying there's two ways. You can either try to earn it by keeping the law. You will not do it. If you fail it in one point. You've, you've failed it entirely. And he says, or there is the gift of righteousness, which God gives as a gift to those who will believe in Jesus Christ. So God can give you the gift, or you can try to earn it. There is no, by the way, middle ground. And those who try, that's what he's, he warns and he's dealing with in Galatians a lot. Those who are trying to have a little of both. In fact, Paul warns anyone who might try to earn eternal life by keeping the rules of the law, that by placing themselves under the authority of the law, listen to this, this is really important, they expose themselves to the curses which fall on anyone who does not obey all the laws perfectly. I was explaining this to somebody just the other day. 
Uh, you know, there's a, there's a rising tide right now in, in, in Christianity of getting more and more into Jewish things. And, and, and you know, I, I, I love, I love the, the Old Testament. I love Judea, learning from Judaism. I, I love Israel. But our, our Lord has brought us an, another approach. Actually, it's all the way through. It goes clear back to Abraham. And that is walking in faith with the God and receiving the gift of righteousness. And I was talking to somebody who was, who was, who was kind of, we were talking about where are those lines. And I said, do you realize what Paul says in Galatians? He says that when you put yourself back under the authority of the law, he says you also put yourself under the curses of the law. I didn't say that. Paul said that. Paul said that. So if you want to play that game, that's what you get with it. Fail it, and that, and that, that, that wrath begins to be released. It's a very dangerous substance to deal with, you might say. Listen, for as many are, are, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. Say all things. All See, that's Paul, and Paul's making that point. Everything, you can't fail at all. By all things written in the book of the law to perform them. This is the first lesson we need to learn from this living parable. We need to realize that apart from the mercy of God, which comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ, we are as deserving of death as the most obvious sinners around us. Un understanding this truth will humble us and stop us from being harsh and judgmental. Our goal will be to bring people to the Savior, not condemn them. We, uh, I think it was last year, we, uh, we've still considered it. There's a program called Celebrate Recovery. It's a good Christian program. And, and we, don't, we aren't doing it. I'm not, saying, I'm not announcing it. Uh, we are, we've thought about it. We're, we're looking strongly about how do we, how do we minister uh, to the growing needs in our community. But we watched the video that presents Celebrate Recovery, and Rick Warren is one of the, the authors of that, a pastor in Southern California, and he, he said something that just really struck me. He said, I've, I've learned over the years that I don't allow anybody to lead in this program who has not failed, personally, who does not have a history. He said, because the ones that don't have a history get mean. Did you hear this? There's something about those who have not struggled with their own sin or, or had those, those kings where, there's, where they, they, they've, they've had their own just plain old shame tend to be harsh with those who do struggle. But those who have fallen and, been, and found grace find that when they, when they present Jesus to someone else, it's what's that old phrase, uh, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread? They just say, hey, this is where I found grace. Uh, this is what healed my life. It, 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 it got me out of, the, out of the mess. You need it too. You need him too. You hear that? It's an attitude. It's, it's either me coming to bring someone who's below me something they need, or it's me sharing with you what I found. It's, it's a very different approach. Um, and it's this understanding. And this is what Jesus is doing to them right there. Here come these, these religious leaders, these, these Pharisees. They're, they're, they're keeping the laws just as carefully as they know how. And they've got this woman and they caught her in adultery. And they put her in the middle and said, what are you going to do with her? And he says, 
you're as guilty as she is in the law. And they are. And if they're on, and it's amazing, they were honest group. That's why they walked away. If it had been a dishonest group, they wouldn't have walked away. They're an honest group going, right. <laughs> Hallelujah. They're not far from the kingdom. Lesson number two. After telling the woman's accusers that they were just as guilty as the woman they put in front of him, by announcing that he forgave her, Jesus was saying, that's why I'm here. I came to earth to save guilty people. You brought this woman to me, and I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins. So I say to her, and I do not condemn you either. Do you notice how similar this is to the situation in Capernaum when they brought him a paralytic man? And they put the man in front of him, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders go, Who is this who thinks he could forgive sins? And he turned to them. What did he say? He said, which is it easier to say? Your sins be forgiven you or rise and walk. But that you might know that the Son of Man, meaning him, you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, and he turned to the guy, rise and walk. And the paralytic got up and walked. He has power to forgive sins. That's what he's doing right here. Here she comes. And he says, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. He says, neither do I. She's come to Jesus and found mercy. It's, it's, it's a parable. I mean, it isn't a parable. It's an actual historical moment. But it just loaded with meaning. When, pe- when sinful, guilty people come to him, this is what they find. Hallelujah. By these words, Jesus was revealing the heart of God. The Father had sent him here on a mission. To save people, not condemn them. Listen. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His assignment wasn't to judge. He wasn't here to condemn. He was here to rescue. If people try to earn righteousness by keeping the rules of the law, the verdict will be death. If people come to Jesus by faith, they will be given the righteousness of faith. Again, Paul explained this truth. But to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Look at that phrase. Isn't that a great one? Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Two paths. Do Do you earn your due or do you receive your gift? Coming to Jesus and receiving by him, from him the gift of righteousness. Lesson number three. Jesus said to the woman, and I don't condemn you either. But he didn't stop there. He added this. Go. From now on, sin no more. In other words, Jesus did not ignore her sin or let her think that because of mercy she could keep on sinning. What isn't explained here, but he explains elsewhere, is that his death and resurrection would make it possible for humans to actually fulfill the holy standards of the law. Please notice this. He's not saying, I don't care. I'm just a nice guy. He's saying, I don't condemn you. 
go and sin no more. And then what isn't contained in this event, because, but, but he will explain as we go on in this gospel, and certainly uh, we, we learn it in, uh, in, in the rest of the New Testament, he is going to provide something for her so she really can walk holy. He wants us, and I, I'll say this later, he wants us to have a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Not only given to us, he wants our lives cleaned. He wants us holy and pure and, and, and walking rightly. And he's made a way so that can happen. He was not giving this woman a hopeless assignment. He was not giving her a second chance only to see her keep failing. In time, he would offer her everything she would need to become holy. Here's how he would do this. Number one. He would die on the cross in her place and remove all her sin and restore her relationship with God. Number two, he would ascend into heaven and continually intercede for her before the Father. By continually forgiving her, he would give her the time to learn how to obey God. This is a really important point. John wrote this many years later. Read this with me. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus would become, if she goes on in faith, and, and who doesn't think she will? I mean, he, he's, a good, he's got a great ability to read a person. I mean, look at the woman at the well and stuff. He can just, he can just tell... I think if her attitude had been different, I don't know we'd have had the same dialogue. But she comes and he can, he can tell there's a sincerity in this woman. There's, there's something there. And so he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And I don't think she did. I mean, I, I mean who, yes, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sense of we're all doing that. But, but I, think this, I think there was a sincerity there. And I think he sees that in her. Look, what he has done is he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And from there, he intercedes for you and me continually. What does that mean? Every time we sin, he reminds the Father of his atonement for us. What does that do? This is very, very important. It buys God time to teach us how to live good lives, holy lives. God is, not, is no longer our judge. In other words, you did it, I'm going to punish you. God is now our coach. God is there and saying, all right, you know, you, oops, you did it again. Uh, but he, has, he is with us as a father, training us to learn to walk holy lives. We all have things that need improvement. But would you assess your life if you've walked with Christ for a while? Would you assess your life and say, I've actually grown. I've actually changed. Things have, you know, I, I have become a very different person. How many would say I have? That, that, our salvation, God has provided a salvation for weak, guilty people like us. So that he forgives us and keeps forgiving us. This, this is the very important truth you have to get a hold of. This is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What's happened is I'm covered even when I fail. In fact, I mean, if we get honest with ourselves, that's all the time, isn't it? I mean, attitude-wise, I mean, I'm apologizing for my attitude on the way, home, way down here. I just, you know, so you, maybe you don't even want to listen to me. 
I, 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 got, I got that flesh. I got that stuff and I get grumpy and all of these things. I'm kind of, oh, Jesus, forgive me. I bless those. I love them. They aren't here, by the way. None of you. It, was, it, was, it wasn't. Anyway, so I, I, I'm doing, but I'm having to deal with those. That's sinful. That's sinful. I'm told to love my neighbors myself. And, and, I, and I reminded myself of that very verse this morning. And, and I, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm loving and having to deal with that sinful attitude that was in me uh, this morning. Am I cast out? Have I, has the Father dropped me and has he pushed me aside? Because I had a lousy attitude this morning. He is not. He loves me. He's my Father. It's like, still working on that. But I'm going to teach this young man. That's uh, what he calls me. I'm going to teach this young man how to walk with me. And he's going to be just like my son Jesus. That's where we're headed, see. There's a process we've entered into now because we have an advocate. This woman would have an advocate who would pray for her so that the Father now, by the Holy Spirit, would teach her and train her to become holy and strong and a godly woman that glorifies God. Do you understand? This is the agenda. This is, the, this is God's plan. Number three, by taking on a sinful body like ours, when he died on the cross, Jesus made our bodies clean before God so that the Holy Spirit can indwell us. He can dwell within us. That means this woman would have the power she needed to overcome the temptations of the flesh and live holy lives, a life. Paul explained this. For what the law could not do, this law of Moses, Weak as it was through the flesh, what couldn't it do? Couldn't make people holy. Couldn't make people obey. It could make, you could obey all kinds of little things, but, but you couldn't really change that rebellious garbage inside. It, it didn't do it. God did. He did that by sending his son, own son in the likeness of, say, sinful flesh. Not human flesh. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say human flesh. He said he put him in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he came with a body with appetites and pressures like yours and mine. Jesus experienced everything we experienced. Now, there's an important reason for this. As an, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. Your body and mine has been used in ways that disqualify it from anything holy that God would do. Uh, your body and mine uh, should not be a place where God be, would be willing to dwell. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, took on our sinful flesh. And as, 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 as our representative, he died not only for the rebellion in our hearts against God. But he also died for the very instrument of our body in the way it's been used for wickedness. And he has cleansed my body and yours so that God can now, by his Holy Spirit, come inside of me and you and not leave. This could not happen in the Old Testament. It had not accomplished in the Old Testament. The Spirit could be upon them, they're righteous by faith. I'm not saying there's no salvation in the Old Testament. There most certainly is. What I'm saying is they, this could not happen. There were not human temples like that. There is now. And here's the wonder of it. 
The wonder of it now is, though my bo- that old nature of my flesh still has its passions, as I just admitted to you earlier, still has its stuff, I also have within me the God of heaven. I have a power within me greater than the power of this flesh. So that if I will draw on this power, I can overcome the flesh and my spirit can rule my body. So I'm no longer a slave. I've been set free to obey. In the process, I'm covered with grace. And while I'm learning, I'm learning to put to death the deeds of my flesh by the spirit. Did you hear this? Yeah, this is the lesson we're learning. And it works. It works. I have watched people with the most severe psychological issues learn to do this and walk free. This, this is real. You and I have a real power in our lives. This is why we, we learn to pray in the spirit. We learn to worship through. We, we, we learn to lay hold of God. We get in the, in the word in the morning and build our spirit. We learn to let our spirit rule over the stuff of this flesh. Because, and we have within us, because of our lovely Lord, we have within us the spirit of God who does not leave us. And an intercessor who's praying for us. Hallelujah. Number four, then someday because of Jesus, if she went on to be his follower, she would be resurrected into a glorious eternal body, which has no sinful impulses. At that moment, her adoption as a child of God will be complete. Written in the earth, there were two major truths being taught by Jesus on this encounter, in this encounter. The first is the one we've studied up to this point. Here's what happens to sinners who come to me. They receive great mercy. But there is also a second truth, but it is less obvious. We discover it by observing what he did rather than by listening to what he said. Twice during this confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dirt with his finger. Many suggestions have been made about what he wrote there. But the fact is we don't know. Yet by focusing on what he wrote... We overlook the more important question of why he did this. I believe he was issuing a warning to the men who brought the women, woman by using a prophetic symbol found in the prophecy of Jeremiah. The message was this. Here's what will happen to self-righteous people who don't come to me. Their names will be written in the earth. Not in the book of life, which is in heaven. To understand this, let's listen to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the, the what? The fountain of living waters. That's what he just discussed yesterday. That's what he just announced himself. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, my people have turned away from me, the fountain of living water, and have dug holes in the rocks and grounds to, to try to contain their, and make their own water holding systems, and those are broken. So here's the picture. Those who come to the fountain and drink, those who hew for themselves their own little holes in the ground to contain water. One laboring in the law, one coming by faith. You follow it? Let's look at the next verse. This is Jeremiah 13, uh, 17, pardon me, verse 13. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, 
the fountain of living waters. So in that encounter, on a day set aside to celebrate the law, there was a promise of mercy to those who know they have failed and live up to, God, to, to live up to God's holy standards. They too will hear him say, and I do not condemn you either. But there was also a warning to those who refuse to receive the gift of righteousness that he offers. Their names will be written in the earth. You see it? He kneels down and he begins to just write. Written in the earth. Written in the earth. Not written in heaven. Written in the earth. In situation after situation, as we read through the gospel of John, Jesus' basic message is this. You need a savior. You won't make it on your own. That's why I came to you. Now you must choose to come to me. You need a savior. You won't make it on your own. That's why you must come to me. Have you made that choice? He came to save guilty people. And we have to know our guilt. We have to know, in some cases, I think, our powerlessness. Some of us try harder than others to sort of establish our own righteousness. To make it on our own. Make it without God. How long does it take for, for me to get to a place where I say, I give up? This isn't working. I, 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 can't, I can't establish my own righteousness. I can't make this body or attitudes do any of the right things. It, I, I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. I need to come to you, Jesus Christ. And I need the gift of righteousness. You know, here it is. I mean, talk about the gift of righteousness. Here are the symbols of exactly that. It's, it's the, the Lord is saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. He's, he's giving us the gift of what he's done. That by faith, we receive what he's done. And in that, we become righteous. How righteous? As righteous as he is. For we are literally included. We are joined to him spiritually. So who he is before the Father? We are. What has been given to him, we receive. This is the... The promise of Jesus Christ. Have you made that choice? Have you stopped trying to establish your own? Have you admitted your need and come to him in all of your, all of your weakness and just said, I, 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 I repent of it. I ask you, Lord, to give me the gift of righteousness. Would you bow your heads with me just one moment? We're going to take communion. There's no better way to reach out and, and just say that, that, Jesus, I believe in you with all my heart. But I just wanted to give a moment to agree, for anyone who needed to just seal it and agree and say, I'm, I'm that guilty person. I, I, I've, I've come before the Lord and I need him to say, and neither do I condemn thee. I need to receive that gift of righteousness. I need his power. I can't make it on my own. I know that now. 
Anyone want to confess that before we take communion? Just with heads bowed, all I'm going to do is just agree with you if you raise your hand, but just give you a chance to seal it, to make that decision. Yes, praise God. Anyone else? Yes, yes. Praise the Lord. This is not a game. Yes, this is a moment of faith. We are rising up and by faith. Yes, praise God. Hallelujah. Isn't he lovely? Can you imagine a, a, a salvation more effective? That, that we would come to him and that he would intercede for us, that he would give us the Holy Spirit, and that he would, would no longer judge us, but he would, he would train us and walk with us day by day, forming us into his children. What a glorious thing that he has done for us. Anyone else? I'll just, I don't. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. In the Sermon on the Mount, I'll just, I'll just quote it a little bit. Um, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. In fact, he said, I, I, every, every letter, every word of the law is to be fulfilled. He said, I came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. In other words, I came to, to make righteous people, holy people, good people, godly people. I didn't come to remove the rules. I came to come at the process a new way. And that the result would be people who truly love God with all their heart, mind, and soul and love their neighbor as themselves, full of the love of God, walking in purity, walking in kindness, walking in generosity. We are in a process where we are becoming like Christ. Yes. This, is the, this is God's plan. Blessed be the Lord. Yes. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to, 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 to remove the law or abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Blessed be God. In Jesus Christ, we simply say, we believe in you. We thank you. We receive that gift of righteousness. We receive today this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. All that you have done for us. We receive it by faith. And we confess you as our, our Lord. Our crucified and resurrected Lord. We, we confess you as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, one who, who has made it possible and has poured out the Spirit of God without measure. We, we call you our, 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 our head of our church, head of our family. We follow you. You are our teacher and Lord. We bless you and honor you. Thank you for what you have done for us, Jesus. In your mighty name we prayed. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.